0: All right, Exodus chapter twenty. So we are we are in really a very important chapter here in Exodus. Not that one is more important than another, but this is Exodus twenty. This is the chapter when where the Ten Commandments are introduced to us. So in scripture, the first place you will find a record of God's Ten Commandments is right here in Exodus twenty. And I'm not going to try to rush through Exodus 20. Uh, I'm going to take my time because there actually is a lot to talk about here. And uh, we're not going to be able to talk about it exhaustively because it would take us literally months to do that. But we're going to certainly not try to go through this entire chapter in one uh, Sunday morning because that would not be doing it justice. And there really is some things worth taking time ...to look at in a little bit of detail as we go through this. So today I'm going to try to give you just kind of a a good overview of this chapter. And then we'll work our way through it. Amen? So Exodus chapter 20, follow along as I read. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God "...visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy." the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, <clears throat> and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses you speak with us and we will hear but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have, been, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves an altar of earth. You shall I'm sorry. Let me read 23 again. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool upon it, you have profaned it. You shall not Go up by, you shall go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed upon it. Father, we ask that you would, by your grace and by your mercy and by your powerful and present Holy Spirit, Lord, bring light to this word, bring light to your gospel revealed on the very pages of this scripture that we just read. Lord, open our eyes and open our hearts that we may see Jesus, that we may see the hope and the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, in the first 17 verses of this chapter, there's 26 verses. In chapter 20, verses 1 through 17 of Exodus, God speaks and he gives to Moses and to the children of Israel, the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's called the Decalogue. Deca means ten. Uh, a log of ten commandments. The Ten Commandments. You go to the Capitol in Austin and you'll see they have a monument of the Ten Commandments. You go many places and, and you'll see the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that God gave to Moses and to the children of Israel. And God begins this by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's good news. So these commandments were given to Israel, but they were written, they were recorded, they were given for all of us. So let's go through these ten commandments and let's just let's go back through them and kind of enumerate them the first one is you shall have no other gods before me very short and very sweet you shall have no other gods before me the second commandment is you shall not make for yourself a carved image now oftentimes when you see the commandments listed You just see that. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. But God gives us a lot of context for this second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. But look at verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands. Now I want to I just park on this commandment for just a moment. So there was a time in the church, and there are still churches today who do not believe it is appropriate that it is sinful to have a cross, to have uh, any carved image of an animal or anything in it based on this commandment. But that's not, or even in your home, that it would be sinful for you to have crosses hanging in your home or angels statues or pictures of angels or pictures of these images hanging in your home, there, there are those in the past and there are those in the present who interpret that as a violation of this commandment. But I think if we read this commandment in its context we see that God's point is here that we don't want to create images of things that become objects of worship for us. We have a cross hanging in this room but we don't worship that cross. That cross represents something. It represents a work that was done. It represents a person, a savior. It represents the one we do worship. But we don't bow down to the cross. We don't bow down to statues of saints or statues of Mary or even statues of Jesus because we're not worshiping a statue. We're not worshiping an image, we worship the true and living God. And God's point here is that you cannot capture God in an image that can be carved or drawn or made by human hand. He is too great for that. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let me back up just for a moment because I want to draw this out, point this out to you. In verse 5 of of chapter 20, in the second commandment, it says, God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. There's an implication there. Those who worship other gods are those who hate God. And, And if you enter into false worship. And this is why God told Israel, don't intermarry with these tribes. It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with worship. Because the other tribes worshipped false gods. And he says, if you intermarry with these other tribes, you will begin to worship these false gods. Your children will grow up and begin to worship false gods. And you will have generational issues of false worship of people who have not learn to love me but through their practice they demonstrate that they actually hate me." And he said this has generational implications. For those who worship false god the iniquities of the fathers will be visited to the third and the fourth generations. Why? Because these things are learned behaviors. This is why we bring our children. This is why the Bible commands us to train up our children in the way they should go. This is why, parents, you should not leave it up to your children whether they're going to come to church with you. It's not their decision. You are commanded by God to bring them, to train them up. This is exactly what God is talking about here. But then I want to point out verse 6 but showing mercy to thousands. That thousands there does not mean thousands of people. What is the context? This is the importance of learning how to read and study your Bible. The context here is not people. The context here is generations. He said, I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generations, but to those who love me, I will show mercy to thousands. Thousands of generations. That's what that means there. Not just thousands of people. The promise of God is not just to a few people. It is to thousands of generations. Now how do we know that's true? I submit to you that the very fact that we are here today. That you are sitting there, listening, as I read this scripture, as we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are the product of this promise. Because there were men and women, fathers and mothers, naturally and spiritually, who came before us, who laid the foundation, who paved the way for this promise that God has kept his promise to thousands of generations. We are 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. We are 3,500 plus years on the other side of the day that God gave these commandments to Moses. We are 3,500 years removed from the day that God gave this commandment to Moses. And here we are thousands of generations later proclaiming the name of the Lord, commemorating, celebrating, honoring the commandments that he gave to his church, to his people. God is a faithful God. He kept his promise that he will continue to keep his promise. The question is never whether God is going to keep his word. The question is, are you and am I going to keep his word? Commandment three, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That also is a commandment with much implication. This isn't just flippantly using the name of Jesus or flippantly using the name of God or damning things with God's name, as many people are prone to do. This also is, who do you confess yourself to be? Who do you confess God to be? Do you confess to be a follower of Christ? Do you confess to be a worshiper of God? Do you invoke God's name in worship? Do you invoke God's name when it is appropriate, maybe in a setting like this? But what happens on Monday? What happens on Wednesday? What happens on Thursday? What happens when it's not convenient To actually practice what you say you believe. And so church becomes this convenience or inconvenience. Or worship becomes this convenience or inconvenience. I'll get around to it when it's convenient. I'll get around to it when I feel like it. Now I could say I'm not trying to step on your toes, but actually I am. But actually it's not me stepping on your toes. If we're all honest, it's God stepping on all of our toes, right? Because even if you, let's just take being in church, even if you're in church every time the doors are open, that does not necessarily mean that your heart and your attitude are necessarily where they should be. So you begin to see that these commandments have deep implications for our lives at every level. And that's why we're going to have to take some time to actually go through this and talk about them because if, we, if we're not careful you will have gross misunderstandings about what these commandments are about and why God gave them and what you're to do with them You won't see them as good news. You'll see them as horrible news. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That, whole, that fourth commandment is one that we could spend a whole lot of time on. There are huge implications there. But let's keep going. We'll come back to it. Don't worry. Now, let me, let me just stop right there. Those first four commandments deal exclusively with our worship of God. They all deal with our worship of God, but they are directly addressing what is happening between us and God, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. And then we get to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It's the only commandment with promise of these ten. God didn't give this to Moses and the children of Israel and say, by the way, when your kids get back from children's church, be sure and tell them about the fifth commandment. No, God gave this to the people of Israel and the people of Israel were not just everyone over 18 or 21, the people of Israel was everyone from the cradle teetering, on the edge of the grave. And so it is today. The people of God is everybody in this room, from the very youngest to the very oldest. And the commandments apply to everybody, from the very youngest to the very oldest. And God addresses children here, whether they are three weeks or whether they are a hundred and three years old. Old, we're all children, right? Honor your father and your mother that the days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's pretty cut and dried, right? So, Well, that's, that's a simple one to understand. It might not be as simple for us to understand as we think it is. You shall not commit adultery, number seven. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. The first four deal specifically with our relationship with God, this relationship between us and God in our worship. The last, the last six here deal specifically with our relationships with one another, starting with parents going all the way to neighbors. Jesus was asked this question, who is my neighbor? And the answer Jesus gave when he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, the implication is that everybody is my neighbor. It's not just the good Jew, it is the despised Samaritan. It's not just the person that, that, that lives in the same social circle and social realm that I do. It's not just the people that have the same skin color that I do. No, your neighbor is everybody, regardless of race, or creed, or color, or social status. And how you interact, and how you love, and how you treat one another, from your parents to your neighbor, has an absolute implication in your worship of God. So, those are the Ten Commandments. And notice, these are Ten Commandments, they are not Ten Suggestions. And this is how we, whether we would say that, because we all know better. But we often, we very often live as though these are not actually Commandments, but they are Suggestions. Well, well, sure, we know that we should have no other gods before us, and we're not going to do that. And I'm not going to make a totem pole and put it in my bedroom and bow down to it and worship it. But when we get to commandments like honor the Sabbath, what do we do with that? Mm, that's an easy one to fudge on, Right? And we say, sure, well, God understands. It's not that I can't do anything. It's not, I mean, God, God understands. But what is the point of God giving us the commandments? There is a point. There is a reason. And I think it is worth us really thinking about that and contemplating that. Because these are not suggestions. These actually are commandments. And from these ten commandments issue all the other laws and commandments. These ten commandments are universal. They're universal in scope. They speak to all humanity. They don't just speak to Jews. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he's writing to a mixed church of Jew and Gentile. That means you had Jews and you had everybody else from all over the rest of the world. And they had all come together because they had all come to faith in Jesus Christ. So you had every color, you had every race, you had every ethnic background. You can imagine that the Roman Empire assembled in Rome and they brought them in from all over the world. And Paul is writing that letter and he's saying, Listen, we are all under God's law and we have all been found guilty by God. So if this is universal in scope, it speaks to all humanity throughout all times. It's revealing for us the just demand that is placed upon all peoples. It's the just demand of God's righteousness and God's holiness. The law obligates us, but the law does not give us the energy to perform what is obligated. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? You've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again. The law was never given as a formula or a system by which you or I could become righteous before God. That's not why God gave the law. But the law was given by God, it's commanded by God, and there is an obligation that comes with the law. The law must be met. So it brings the obligation, but it does not give us the energy or the means or the power by which we can perform or keep the law. Now that's not a problem the law has. That's a problem we have. Paul writes this also in Romans. He says, listen, the problem's not the law. The law is good. The law is holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect. The problem is us. We're the ones that are not perfect. And if you are sitting there thinking, surely, Pastor Jeff, you're not saying God is this perfectionist, are you? I'm saying, yes, he absolutely is. He is an absolute perfectionist. You've never met a perfectionist as, that demands as much perfection as God demands. In your OCD, you'll never approach being a perfectionist the way God is a perfectionist and when he gave the law when he gave the commandments he absolutely obligated us to those laws now if we just stopped right there that would be really bad news the Bible is not about bad news the Bible is about good news so let's keep going so, what the law does is the law reveals our true state, our desperate need of a Savior. If the law obligates me to perfection, and I'm unable to be perfect, I've got a problem. I need someone to help me. I need a Savior. We need someone that's willing and able not only to keep the law, but then to impute their righteousness To us, because we don't have any righteousness of our own. We need a Savior that we can trust. We need one who is the just and the justifier. Well, Paul writes about this very thing in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. (coughs) Excuse me. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, in other words, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, whom God set forth as a propitiation, or what that word means simply is an atoning sacrifice by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of his Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So though we are not saved through keeping the moral law, we are are not free from the obligation that God's moral law places upon us. And Paul's whole point in his letter to the Romans is, you can't keep the law, but Jesus has. It's not your ability to perform the law, it is your trust in Jesus as the one who has already fulfilled the demand of the law. So I recognize what the law does is recognize, it makes Jeff Ripple realize he cannot keep the law. I am hopeless, and all I am left with, thank God, is faith in Jesus. So I confess to God my weakness, and I say, I cannot keep your law, God. But I know who can, and I put my faith I fall upon the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So what Paul insists upon is this, that obligation is one thing, and energy to perform it is another. The law is good, but it does not have the gift of pardon, and it does not inspire us or enable us to be able to do that within ourselves. But it does reveal our weakness as we endeavor to perform or to keep God's law. And that contrast there of what God obligates and what I am unable to do, it reveals the beauty and the purity of the law while at the same time revealing my wretched condition as a sinner, carnal, sold under sin. It brings me to this place where I understand that my only hope is faith in Christ who has fulfilled what we cannot. And through faith, Christ imputes, he imparts his very own righteousness to us, a righteousness we cannot gain ourselves. We can't earn it, we can't work for it. Christ imputes to us the righteousness of God. The law is not faith, but it reveals that faith in another is our only hope. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 3.12. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them, the one who does the law, shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to attempt to keep the law, you've got to keep all of it. If you're going to live by the law and believe that your righteousness is in keeping the law, then you've got to keep all of the law, not just some of it. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. So here's how I want you to think about the law of God the law of God is a whole, it's not many different pieces. I want you to think of a window. Now back in the day you'd see an old house and there's still old houses like this and you have windows with window panes and each of those window panes was a separate piece of glass. Now when you buy modern windows if you want grids in your windows it's two full sheets of glass and they just put these little metal grids in between the two sheets of glass to make it look like you got ten window panes there but you really don't have ten window panes, you just got one piece of glass. Well back in the old day when they actually had window panes and and you had individual pieces of glass and I remember the house I grew up in that's the way the windows were. The windows, the old windows in our house were just like little, little panes and so when you threw a ball through one particular pane that pane broke but you had nine other window panes that were still solid there so You just had to replace that one window pane, right? That's not how the law of God is. The law of God is to be thought of like a plate glass window. In the house I grew up in also had this, in our living room we had what was called a picture window. And I remember as a kid it just seemed massive to me. I mean it was probably, it was probably six foot wide and six foot tall. It was a big piece of glass and that's where we'd put our christmas tree and that's you know it was the picture window in the living room there and when you drove by the house from the street you'd look and you you could see through that picture window if my mom had the curtains open it was one huge piece of glass that's the way the law is it's not 10 different panes of glass with 10 panes of glass, you still have a number of unbroken panes if one or more get broken. With a plate glass window, even if the farthest corner is even slightly chipped, the whole window is broken. And this is what, this is what the scripture is teaching us. Look, if, this is what James says. James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. So when I chip the corner of the plate glass window, when I chip the corner of the picture window, I don't just go to my mom and my dad and say, well, I just chipped that little corner part down there. It's okay. No, the whole window now is broken. Whether it's shattered in pieces or not, it's broken. It's not perfect any longer. And this is exactly what the Bible is teaching us about the law. If you're going to live by the law, the moment you violate just one of those laws, not just the ten, but now you add everything that God commanded Israel, the moment you break one of those, you've broken all of it. And you become accountable for all of it because when the glass company comes out, they can't just replace the corner. They've got to take the entire thing out and put a whole new piece in. God demands absolute perfection. No chips, no cracks, no imperfections, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant. God demands absolute and complete perfection. With the smallest chip, the entire law has been broken. The law is a whole. It's not many parts. It is a whole and it must be fulfilled which brings us to the next point that Jesus did not come to abolish the law he came actually to fulfill the law the law of god is alive it's well it's right now it's fully in place fully being kept right now it will never die it will never pass away it can only be fulfilled. Jesus did not come to abolish the law as some erroneously believe. There are some Christians who will never read the majority of their Bible. They believe the only part of their Bible that's relevant for them is Matthew on. That the Old Testament has somehow passed away and has become irrelevant. There is nothing for farther from the truth. Because it was the Old Testament that Jesus used to reveal himself to his disciples. It is the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets that have given us the very letters and writings of the New Testament that we hold so highly. They're not different things, they are part of the whole. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 and 18, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Do you know what a jot and a tittle are? In the Hebrew language if you could read Hebrew, if you just go to a, look up Hebrew in, uh, on the internet, you'll see that the Hebrew characters, they're, they're, there's little little things. It's like dotting an I or crossing a T, jots and tittles. There are these little marks. Jesus says, he, he doesn't say a letter. It's like us saying today, don't think that the law will pass away because not even the dotting of one I will pass away. In other words, the law is eternal. It's not passing, it's being fulfilled. Well, who is fulfilling the law today? Not you and I, at least not in practice. But we are, in a sense, fulfilling it because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law for us. Faith in Christ does not release us from the obligation to live righteous and holy before God. Faith in Christ delivers us from the condemnation that the law brings to us because we have no power in our flesh to be holy and righteous as God is holy and righteous. The gift of faith that comes by God's grace keeps our hearts and our minds pointed to the holiness and the righteousness we now have in Christ while reminding us that we are unholy and unrighteous in ourselves so we're not putting our hope in ourselves we're putting our hope in Christ we're not putting faith in our ability to keep the law we are putting our faith in God in Christ already having fulfilled and currently eternally fulfilling God's law while trusting in Christ and trusting in his strength and trusting in his ability and his work, we desire and we seek to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. We know we are sinful and weak in ourselves, but God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. When Jesus said that to Paul. He was not just talking about Paul being able to gut it up and endure some physical pain from some physical affliction. That's how we want to read that scripture. The, the truth and the implication is much deeper because if you go back to the law, a person who had a physical ailment was considered unclean. You went to the temple to offer your sacrifice, and you have a a scar. I mean, you've got a, a wound, even if it's healing. If you've got a wound, if you've got a physical imperfection, there were certain things that would disqualify you from being able to even bring your sacrifice to be offered in the temple. And at no fault of your own, you can have an ailment like the woman with the issue of blood. It wasn't her fault she was sick for 18 years. But for 18 years, she was perpetually unclean. It was against the law for her to go into the temple. It was against the law for her to be around people. That's why when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, it was absolutely scandalous. Because she broke the law and she could have technically suffered greatly having broken that law. So when God says, when Jesus says to Paul, the apostle, Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, this goes to the very depth of who we are. We are sinners. We are born in sin. We are unrighteous. We are unholy. We are incapable of fulfilling God's demand. Then what hope do we have? Here's our hope, it's Jesus Christ. Adam was never meant to be the one who would walk perfectly before God. When God created Adam, God was under no illusion that Adam was going to walk perfectly. God knew Adam would fail. God created Adam and put Adam in the garden strictly and solely so that God could bring through Adam the one who would ultimately one day walk in perfection and walk in holiness and walk in righteousness. So Paul writes in Galatians in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of a virgin born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. We are all under the law and we all need redemption And our hope today is to look to and to trust in Christ because Christ and Christ alone is the fulfillment of God's law. So we're going to stop there and then we're going to pick up next week in chapter 20 and we'll continue this discussion about God's law and then we're going to go on to the rest of the chapter. So I want to invite the worship team, the guys to come back and we're going to get ready and we're going to come to the table. Even coming to this table has unbelievable implications. You and I have no right in and of ourselves to come to this table, but what Jesus has done has given us the privilege. He has made a way where there was no way that we can now come to this table. And we can partake of his body and his blood. And we can proclaim the good news of what he has done to redeem us from the curse of the law. Christians, come to this table. Come trusting in Jesus. We'll all take communion together at the end, uh, once we've all been served. And this is my charge to you today, that we would not look at the law and the impossibility it presents, but we would look at the law and we would see the grace that it presents. That God did not leave us without hope. He didn't give us a law and demand perfection and then leave us without hope. He gave us a law, he demands perfection. He reveals that we are incapable, but he sent the one who is able. So we look at the law and we see Jesus as the fulfillment we see the grace of God and that grace should motivate us to live holy and righteous to desire to do these things that are the expression of God's nature and character while the whole time understanding that in ourselves we are not able but in Christ with God all things are possible Amen.